Well, finally, we come to the last of these particular presentations in this series, and I invite you uh, to just listen, join along, get your Bible. We're going to be doing a little, little looking. I'm assuming our system's back up. Yep, we're on. We live in perilous times. The family is challenged on many fronts. And we have so many things that we can do on the menus that present themselves to our, to our lives. So many choices to make. A problem exists when we know how to do so many things, but we don't have time to do all the things we know how to do. Unfortunately, sometimes our lives run us instead of us running our lives. This morning I want to talk to you about priorities and about basically how to, how to uh, get our life in order. And I want to start out with um, these PowerPoints and I'm going to go to probably an unlikely passage uh, to, to begin with. And I want to get some basics and then I want to end up with a little exercise that we'll uh, maybe start, maybe we'll do together. But I want to suggest in the very beginning that marriages often are in trouble today. We live in an age of serial monogamy, bouncing from person to person, and sometimes it's not just, uh, not, not just monogamy. And uh, we have people who live a life that is out of, out of balance. If you have a vehicle, I'm assuming you do, that, that's what brought you here today, then if you get to bumping down the highway, you go in, you get your tires balanced. Well, sometimes we end up bumping down the highway of life, and we need to go into the shop, to the Jesus shop, and get our tires balanced, because we are, uh, we're, uh, we're living a lopsided life, out of balance. Uh, priorities are just, uh, demands and priorities are just kind of uh, eating at us and pulling at us. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I want to establish a principle first. And that is that sometimes people talk about in marriage, when they want to break up a marriage, they will tell an attorney or a judge that, hey, we need to, we need to cut this home up because we have irreconcilable differences. All right, we're going to start here and we're going to get to the other. But I want to suggest that we don't, should not buy into that lie. Regardless of whether we were compatible to start with, or whether we were compatible and we kind of drifted apart, there are no differences that are irreconcilable if you are children of God. Christians can figure this out. And God's Word gives us all the things that pertain to life and godliness. But I want to suggest it takes two. Marriages are not hopeless, and just like God breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul, even so God can take a marriage that looks like it's broken beyond repair and God can put it back together again. But it takes work. We don't want to ask God to do it all. You see, faith without works is dead. So just reading our Bible and praying 
is not going to put your home together like it ought to be. What that will do is it will help you and give you the help from above, but we're not going to ask God to do it all. There's a part that we have to do, and that part is hard work. That's what I want to talk about this morning. God's going to do His part, but are we doing our part, and do we have things ordered like God wants them to be? It is high time to stop fighting in our marriages and start fighting for our marriages. Um, having the home as God would have it. It takes at least two to fight, and it takes the same number to make up. In other words, marriage cannot be one-sided. Yesterday, we talked a little bit about how getting along together is not necessarily a normal thing, especially if each person likes to have things their own way. Marriage can be, uh, is to be a, a process of compromise. That is, that we don't always get our way. Somebody said marriage is a 50-50 uh, proposition. I don't believe that. I believe sometimes it's 90-10. Sometimes a person uh, defers totally to the other person simply because that's the act of love that is required at that time, uh, is that we do things that maybe we don't particularly want to do uh, because we, are, uh, we love this person. Uh, and so in lessons like this, we usually end up with a pie chart. And I want to go beyond this chart, but I want to illustrate it to start with. In the pie chart, we see kind of uh, the pieces of your life and my life, the categories, if you would. Spiritual is the top one. And actually, this whole pie should be a spiritual pie, not just a piece of it. But spirituality is that which is the connection between us and God. It's also the connection in a Christian marriage between the husband and the wife and also the children. Spirituality. In other words, God has given that which governs every aspect of our marriage. Just to backstep a little bit, in our last presentation, we talked about the physical aspect of marriage. And I want to suggest to you that that physical aspect is also a part of our spirituality. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talked about, uh, about the sexual union. And there he talked about how it was a spiritual union. Uh, in the sixth chapter, it's more than just being connected with, uh, with somebody on the street. Those that are married, uh, married have a spiritual union, a spiritual connection, an intimacy, if you would, that is that connection with, uh, with each other and with God. Intimacy is not a sexual word. It is a word that is used 960 times in your Old Testament. That word in the Old Testament is Yadah. And what it, it is used 900 times talking about our relationship with God. And then the other uh, 60 or so times, the other times it's talking about your relationship with your partner. If we can understand how we are one with God, how our spirits are to be bound together with God, then we will be able to understand better how our spirits and how our lives are to be bound together in the marriage relationship. In other words, we are as one. We move as a team. We, we process life together. We make plans together. We set our priorities together. It's not like we are roommates. That's not what marriage is. But instead, 
It is a union, and it's going to take both of us. It's the spiritual part. Uh, the social part also comes in. I see a lot of people that, uh, and I'm not against uh, people being in activities, but I do think that we need to be selective of our activities. Some things are not wrong in themselves, but we're just doing too many of them. Here's, you know, running up and down the road, delivering this one there and that one somewhere else, and jumping in the car and going here and there. And we are so living, we are so busy living life that we don't live life. We merely run through life. The, uh, also, we have the, the work and the social aspects. And we have obligations uh, the Bible has in all those areas. The physical, we talked a little bit about. And then the biological, we have to take care of ourselves. Many times, this is one that gives in our life. And that is that we forget that our body is a temple of God, uh, a temple of the Holy Spirit that's in us. We are not our own. When we gave ourselves to Jesus, we gave ourselves body, soul, and spirit. And Jesus owns us. To the degree that we allow our body to not be taken care of, to that same degree, we limit our ability to express our soul. Your body is the only vehicle you have to express your soul. You can't express what's going on with you without your body. And so that's the purpose of the body, is to be able to express the soul, the connection, the relationships. That's the purpose of the body. But often what happens is people get sleep deprived, they overeat, they, uh, they sugar up, they end up with all kinds of things that are not healthy for them. They lack, we have a sleep deprived culture that we're in and with all those things, they wear on our physical bodies. And sometimes we wear out long before we need to because we don't use our bodies appropriately, but our bodies are part of, uh, are part, uh, part of that. Uh, and whole lessons we could have on that, but there's a biology to all of this. But aside from that, I want to suggest to you that it is important to decide in our lives not what all we can do, but from the things we're able to do, what are our priorities? Sometimes when people have a long list, we say, well, you need to prioritize that. We can't do all that in one day. And that's what we need to do with our lives. We need to possess the ability to say no, or to say not now, or to say my plate is full, and not feel like we have let people down and disappointed them. Uh, there's only so much a person can do when we do too much, then even though we may want to, we can end up breaking. We give and we give and we give till there's nothing else to give. And then we commit ourselves for 25% more. That is going to destroy not only our life, but it will also destroy our marriage. It's important in life to decide what are our priorities. It's easy to get lopsided in life and to give too much attention to one particular function or two functions and to miss out on living. Henry David Thoreau made this statement. He said, the great tragedy of life is to come to its end only to realize you never live. Let that sink in. Many times people spend their life running through life, but when they look back at their accomplishments, sometimes they're disappointed. And I would ask you, what is it you're trying to do in your life? What are your targets? 
What are your aims in life? What is the legacy you want to leave behind? Do we want our children to say, oh yeah, you know, boy, my family, they're hard workers and, and uh, they never were home. You know, I, we were strangers in the night. They were hard workers. Is that the legacy? Well, if it is, then that's, that's what you want to do. I don't suggest that. But what is your legacy? In some families, the legacy is, oh, I remember dad or mom, they came home all toasted and drunk all the time or messed up on drugs, and that's the legacy. We leave our kids with stuff that's going to send them to a therapist or someone to try to straighten out uh, how we've kind of goofed them up. So what is the legacy we're leaving behind? What legacy are you leaving behind today? And my other question is, what legacy are you leaving this church? If you're a member of this church, what is your legacy? Now, Brother Larry talked uh, earlier about the 50s. I remember some of those. Uh, maybe more than I want to. Uh, but uh, people who have lived and died and who were bulwarks of the faith and they left a legacy behind. What is your legacy? What is your legacy for your family? What's your legacy for the church? What do you want to be remembered for? That's what I'm saying. All right. Well, Henry David Thoreau says that we, uh, that we can get through life and realize that we never really lived. The Bible tells us that life is short. It's like a vapor. It appears for a short time and then fades away. The rich fool had plenty of stuff, but the problem was he was spiritually bankrupt. He had his, his focus in the wrong place. I'm going to get all kinds of money. And how many times has that story been replayed? And here's a person that gives all their attention, out of balance life, to, to success as defined by how much stuff do you have, how nice of, of possessions do you have, and how many times are those people sitting alone in life that they exchange their life for stuff and they sit there alone and have no one to share it with. How sad. How sad. Well, the rich fool's in that category. Uh, but we want to go beyond the pie lesson here. And I want us to turn in our Bibles, and I'm going to use a pew Bible, uh, because my Bible, the palm oil, wore out the page on Ephesians 4. So I'm going to read out of a palm, out of, out of this Bible. And I'll set this aside. By the way, this is my FC Bible. Uh, I've had it all these years. And, uh, but I'm going to do a different one today. All right. So when we look at the Bible, I'd like for you, if you would, to turn to Ephesians. And I want to turn to chapter 5. Okay? And, uh, or chapter 4, uh, actually. Uh, many times people talk about the home and priorities in the home, and they want to get into Ephesians chapter 5. And I want, I want to touch a little bit on that, but I want to start in chapter 4 and pick up the context here. And what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 is basically how to live life. But before we can set priorities, we have to be able to communicate and to work with each other. So in relationship, here's what he has to say. Ephesians uh, 4, verse 25, he tells us uh, after he's told us that we are elect of God and we're to walk as Christians, now he tells us in verse 
25. Wherefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, I realize he's talking about in general here, but I want to apply this to the home right now because it certainly applies there. Did you know that this passage tells us that in order to be able to even set priorities, we have to be truthful with each other? And that seems so elementary. But truthfulness means that we take a look at, does, do we live by honesty? Who lies? And the reality is that in many homes and many relationships, people lie all the time. It should never be said in the Christian home. Did you know 91% of Americans lie routinely about matters that are considered trivial? 91%. They don't deal in truth. My Bible teaches, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. Stop there, and the life. The truth. To the degree that we love and respect truth, to that same degree we respect Jesus. The devil is a liar and the father thereof. So when we find ourselves miscommunicating by giving wrong information or intentionally misdirecting or lying, telling something's untrue to get people off our back, then what we have done is we have shown that Jesus is not our, our author, but instead the devil is our father. He is the liar and the father thereof. So each one of us is to speak truth with, uh, with our neighbor. Now I'll tell you what, that's, that's difficult sometimes. Because when we say things the way they are, sometimes people don't want to hear what we have to say. And so they will challenge it. And I think that's probably why a lot of people lie, is they anticipate the other person's response, and so they just tell them what they think they want to hear. But the Christian speaks truth. Our yea is yea, and our nay is nay, according to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 37. Did you know one out of three people that lie, lie about, about important matters? Now what happens when we don't tell the truth to each other? The first is we don't communicate. But the second thing is we send people off in the wrong directions. And after a while they can lose respect for us. Now you can't trust what they say or take it with a grain of salt. And so we, we, we miss each other. All right, I'm going to get to priorities here. Uh, 86% of people lie on a, or of young people lie to their parents on a regular basis, lying to mom and dad. 75% lie to their friends. And 7 out of 10 people lie to their spouses on a regular basis. Now, how are you going to have a trusting, healthy relationship that is built on respect and love and trust and all those things? How are you going to have that if you can't even tell each other the truth? that honesty is missing in the home. Now, I would ask each of you to say, to ask, are these statistics representative of me? Ask yourself that question. And then uh, examine where you are in terms of what is your value? Do you value truth? I ask people sometimes to list their values. What do you value? And a lot of people will say, well, they'll give me the church answer. You know the church answer, I love God and I love Christ. And uh, and I love the church and so forth. 
they'll give me the church answer, and I tell them, don't give me the church answer. I can preach that answer. I want to know your answer. Because sometimes your answer is not the church answer. Your answer is not the Bible answer. I asked one man uh, this, and I think he was pretty truthful with me. And I said, what, what do you value the most in life? And he said, I'm ashamed to tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And what he said is, my number one value is achievement. I want to be successful in everything I do, everything I touch. That's the number one thing for me. And then he went on with that, and I want to, uh, I want to be able to have all the things I want. So I value material things. That's my second value. And he went on and named, named three more. But as I talked with him, I asked him, I said, is that really what you, now that, that sounds like an honest answer. Is that really what you want to be known for that you value? Because God, Christ, and family, they're not on your achievement list. So how could we expect you to have a healthy home if home is not on your achievement list? So I ask you, Ask yourself, what do you value most in life? Now, when I was working with the homeless in Indianapolis, we were asked that question. And the lady passed out little pieces of paper, or they were on the table, and we filled them out about what we valued the most. And then she said, all right, those five things, what I would like you to do, you have to lose one of those. So take it, tear it up, and throw it in this trash can. And so we ended up doing that. And she did that all the way down to there was one, one thing that you're left with. Remember that City Slickers movie, Curly? One thing. Well, that's this. And there was only one. And a lot of people were kind of embarrassed because that one thing that if they had to give all this other stuff up or these other values, that's all they'd be left with. And what would that be for you? The Bible says we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our might. I would think and I would hope that would be number one. But then that would be the church answer. Now the question is, is that your answer? If I had to give it all up, would I choose God with all my heart, soul, and might? And I couldn't have my house, and I couldn't have my car, and I may not have my relationships. What would I choose? if I had to have those and then give those up. Well, um, okay, let's keep going. You know, lying affects our relationships. When we don't talk truthfully with each other, we give misinformation, then people uh, stop respecting us. And as that, as that uh, fades, uh, uh, we wonder, well, why don't people want to hang around? Why don't they trust me? Uh, and respect uh, gets disrupted here. Uh, again, our yay needs to be yay, and our nay needs to be nay. Uh, it disrupts our, our, um, our unity in the, in the family when we find out somebody's lying to us. It creates conflict. It annihilates trust. And so we have a family that is going to live without trust. We talked about pornography uh, in the last lesson. And pornography, when a person is caught with that, then uh, trust leaves the room. And often trust doesn't come back into the room. If you work on it, it will come back into the room maybe 6 to 12 months later. But you've got to rebuild that trust that got broken or severely damaged. Uh, 
So lying is going to destroy relationship. Um, and, uh, and we talked about Jesus as being the, the primary one um, to put first. You cannot build a relationship if honesty and integrity and truth are not valued. Um, you never have a, a marriage of oneness if you and your spouse fail to value authenticity. We have to be real with one another. We have to talk about what's going on, not use excuses or, uh, or surface answers, to, but instead to answer truthfully with one another. That means that we need to have had discussions uh, with each other uh, about how we're going to function in life. Otherwise, what, what we end up with is a person lies and the lion wrecks the home. It destroys communication. And as we've said, it destroys truth, uh, trust. Now let's go to verse uh, 26. He says, speak the truth one to another. In other words, that's a priority. Then he says, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Now for a long time, people would tell me that anger is wrong, anger is sinful, and I can't allow myself to be angry. And I challenged them. I said, anger is not a sin. The fact is, it's a commandment. And here's the commandment. Be angry. That's the commandment. But limit it and do not sin. It is a natural thing to have things that kind of set us off. But when that happens, we don't tear up our house and cuss people out and throw things. We don't do that. Instead, it's okay to be angry, but anger has to have limits. And one of the limits is you get that fixed in the day when it happened. Don't hang on to that. Don't carry that into tomorrow. And that's why he says here, let not the sun go down on your anger or wrath. And don't give opportunity to the devil. Don't bottle it up. Don't get this attitude that we have bitterness and clamor and, and, and frustration toward our mate. Instead, we're going to get that straight, and now let's get back to it with our marriage uh, and setting our priorities. We're not going to try to look for reasons to get out of the house or to add things that a lot of times when we have too many things going, we're not really living life. We may be running from what would happen if we just stopped and took stock, and we may find that we are not particularly happy people. We may find that we are running from life instead of living life. Well, don't let our anger, anger explode. Um, all right. So the next thing that he tells us in here is that we are to, live, to, to play nice. Verse 29. Let no whole unwholesome words proceed from your mouth, but only such as is good for edifying according to the need of the moment, so it may give grace to those that hear. Now I'm applying that in our home. If you're Christians and your husband and wife are Christians then and your family, that applies in the home too. Uh, we could look at 28, says don't steal. But 29 says that what we do is we use supportive words in our relationships with one another. We're not out here to tear people down, but instead we are watching the words that come out of our mouth. We're playing nice. We are treating people with dignity and with respect. So in terms of our words, do our words benefit the one listening? Does it give grace to those that hear? 
Do our words heal or do they destroy? Do they build up or do they tear down? I would advise also to be very careful about using words like you never, you always, and I tell you what, that, that very seldom, if ever, is true when we globalize things like that. So play nice. Talk nice to each other. Be, be kind to one another uh, is what, it, what it's teaching here. I also believe that in, in, in setting priorities that we need to define our spouse. How do you talk about your husband or your wife? Some people like to talk about them, but what they say isn't too good. Uh, how do you talk about your husband? Do you run your husband and wife down? Do you praise your wife? Uh, do you praise your husband when, when their name comes up? Do you talk about the qualities, that how they've made your, uh, made your life good? Or do we want to pick them apart and run them down? And then when we get with those friends... Those friends kind of act a little odd because they've got information they really don't need. How do we talk about our husband and wife? I hear a lot of times people talk about the old man or the old lady or words even maybe a little worse than that. Um, but is that the respect that a wife deserves or that a husband deserves? What do we say about each other? And how do we define one another? Uh, hopefully, uh, we define them in the positive and we need to see our spouse the way that God sees them. Yes, they've got their issues, but let's do those words, according to this verse, those words that are good for edifying. Do we pray for our spouse? And do we pray together for our spouse, for our children? Do we do that? Those are so critical and so important, and those are in this verse, um, that we need to uh, speak in such a way as to give grace, undeserved favor, uh, when we speak of one another, not running each other down. And then we need to consider one another. And I want to look at 1 Corinthians 7, 33 and 34. In 1 Corinthians 7, we spend a lot of time talking about can couples separate and do it only, if you remarry, only in the Lord, what does that mean? But I want you to look at verse 33 and 34. And what Paul says in there is this. He compares the single life to the married life. And he says, here's what happens when a person, a Christian, is married and trying to do the right thing. And he says that the husband looks to the wife how he might please her. Likewise, the wife looks to the husband how she might please him. Now that sets the rules in our life that are going to undergird priorities, that we look to our mate on how we might please them. And I ask sometimes, uh, I'll uh, use men for an example, I'll ask, what does it take to please your wife? And more often than not, I'll get the feedback, there's no pleasing her. It's like, wait a minute, you got some homework to do, buddy. How do you go about pleasing your wife? And how does she go about pleasing you? Do you see that's kind of a priority Paul sets here? And he says that sometimes that there's a, a competition here with the time that you would otherwise use in spirituality that now you've got to divide that time with your mate. What does it take to please your wife? 
You know, there's a lot of talk these days about love languages, maybe too much talk about them. There's a lot about that. But what does it take to make her feel special? Peter said, 1 Peter 3, 7, that husband is to live with his wife according to knowledge. Knowledge of what? <coughs> knowledge of what? <coughs> knowledge of the Bible, yeah. But knowledge of what does it take to make her happy? Giving honor to her. You see how that's about elevating your spouse, not running them down, not treating them just like some, uh, uh, something to put on a shelf in the home and in the marriage? All right. But what does it take to please the husband and the wife? And if you don't know the answer to that real quick, what you may do is want to have a conversation and find out what does it take uh, in this marriage. We need to assure that Christ is the center of our marriage and that, um, that forgiveness, verse 32 uh, of this, says be kind one to another. He says let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Does that apply in the home? Yes, it does. And he says that we're not characterized if we're Christians by these things, by having a sour disposition or an ugly heart. And here's what he says to do instead. You notice the Bible always gives you instead of. It says, get this stuff out and put this stuff in. And here he says, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as God in Christ has also forgiven you. What's he telling us? We talked yesterday about forgiveness. And, and he's telling us that we need to master that. We need to let our past hurts be gone. I've talked with way too many couples that what they will say is they hold on to something from way long ago. There's one couple has hung on to something for 30 years, and the husband just won't let it go. He keeps reminding his wife about it. And I talked to one recently that they've been holding on to something for nine years. And it's like, have you all talked about this? Have you forgiven each other? Oh, yeah, we forgave each other. And then it's like, why does he keep coming back up in conversation and keeps being that slap them over the head with this? If you truly forgave that person. Tell you what, we cannot rewrite history. And we've all done some stupid stuff, right? We can't rewrite or go back and fix that. What we can do is own it, repent of it, and ask people to forgive us. And if they extend that forgiveness, then we don't expect to be hearing about it anymore if it's a done deal. But this passage tells us that we need to be forgiving of each other even as God in Christ forgave us. How does God in Christ forgive us? When it's done, it's a done deal. It's over with. And so it's uh, their sins and their iniquities well, I remember no more. Now, moving into chapter 5, uh, he tells us that we need to love as Christ loved. And what that means is that Christ, Christ had compassion, and he worked with people, he was patient with them, uh, and he was teaching, he was there for people, and he lived a life that was a dedicated life to God and service to his fellow humans. That's how Jesus did it. That's what he wants us to do. Now, we get down to this. And by the way, we get into chapter 5 now. 
uh, a little bit more, and he talks about silly talking and things that aren't fitting or proper. In other words, coarse joking, uh, he talks about there in verse, uh, verse 4. And then as he gets down into that chapter, he shifts his gears and he talks about the home. And he says that husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Jesus never gave the church a reason to doubt that he loves the church. And then in the same passage, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, here's what happens a lot of times when couples get into fights. What they will do is they will they'll have this fight, and then they acknowledge in the fight um, uh, something like this. Well, you're not being in subjection. And the husband says that. I want you to read the verse. It says, here's what husbands do. They love their wife like Christ loves the church. What's a wife do? She's to be in subjection. That subjection is voluntary. It's not something the husband makes happen. It's something the wife, because of her, uh, her responsibilities to God and her obligations and love for her husband, she chooses to surrender. And here's what happens. In order for love to grow, a lot of the clutter from our life needs to go. And, and in order to have an atmosphere where subjection feels normal and natural, we need an atmosphere that is clothed with intimacy, not sex, intimacy. I truly care for you an environment where we feel safe and secure and we can nest. We need that kind of environment. Not a place we're running in and out of and we don't quite know what's going to happen the next minute. We're just jumping all over the place. We don't have a plan. So here's what I want to suggest. And this is where, this is where I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Every company that exists has a mission statement. The church has a mission statement. You know the mission of the church? Evangelism, edification, limited benevolence. You know that. That's a simple mission statement. Everything we do falls under that, if it's scriptural. Now, every company has a mission statement. And everything that company does falls within the scope of that mission statement. So here's my question. What's the mission of your home? Ask people, well, why are you married? And ultimately, when in the middle of a fuss, I'll ask them that. Why are you all married? How'd you all get together? And you know what I'm told when I, when I ask them, why are you married? I get kind of dumb stuff. <laughs> like, well, we were dating for a long time, and it was either break up or get married, so we decided to get married. Like, is that what your home's built on? <laughs> or someone says, well, you know, we got... We got too physical with one another, and, and we decided that wasn't right, which is true, and so we decided we just need to get married. Is that what your home's built on? Why are you married? But even more so, what are you trying to accomplish in your marriage? That's about priorities. And that's also about a mission statement. So I give an assignment to people if they want to improve your home, you need to know what you're trying to do in this home. And 
It's not a matter of saying I do and then we just take off in all directions in our home without a plan, without priorities. No plan in your home is a plan for your home to fail. And so we need kind of a plan of some sort. And I suggest a mission statement. The mission statement would look something like this. Maybe a three-point mission statement. Our home exists for the purpose of... Why, why does it exist? Now, once you've decided, and you go down about three, maybe four at the most, on those general categories, now, if you know that's what you're trying to accomplish, that's your purpose in this home, then your activities fall underneath that. Now we know what to do. Are we trying to create a spiritual environment? Okay, let's take that one. So we're trying to create a spiritual environment. But we go counter to our mission when we say, but we're going to have our kids in all these activities that are going to take them away from church. Well, that's against your mission if you're trying to create a spiritual environment. You see that? Once you've defined what you're trying to do, you know what fits and what doesn't fit. Someone says, well, we want to create an atmosphere of honesty and uh, we don't have secrets in this family. Really? Okay, good. That's a great mission uh, piece. Does pornography fit in there? No, that doesn't fit in there because that's about secrets. And we're not going to have secrets, so that doesn't fit. We're not going to be doing that. You see what I'm saying here? When you know what you're trying to do in your family, you can decide what fits and what doesn't fit. Instead of just kind of jamming everything we can think of in there, there's a purpose to our home. There's a mission to our home. Now, once you have developed a mission statement, I highly recommend that you do some kind of calligraphy or write it out somewhere and put it in a prominent place. This is what this home is about. We're here to create an oasis in the storms of life, a place where friends are welcome and hospitality is extended. We're here to create an environment where we each love and care for one another and support each other. You see that? So if that's the mission of your home, then now you know what fits in there and what doesn't. And I just want to suggest, as we kind of wrap all of this up, that, uh, that you spend a little time developing uh, a mission statement for your family. In the end, after all this is done, if Christ, if Christ is loved and honored by all in our home, we will not have irreconcilable differences. And what that means is that we need to put Christ first, get that priority where it needs to be, get your mission statement, and then what we need to look at is let's simple down. We have made life so crowded that we don't have time to live. Simple it down. And that's my message to you this morning. Thank you, Art. If anybody has questions, we can fill some. Just has anybody got any written questions they have a question about? Everybody got a perfect home life, like me. <laughs> Why are you laughing, Brad? I mean, come on. <laughs> okay, Mitch.
Okay. You mentioned divorce, um, so separation, or we, you know, it's just, just we're polar opposites. Okay. The first thing we need to do is to deal with ourselves and ask the question: What do I bring to the marriage? The only thing you can change is you. And so we look at my side of the street. What do I bring in in terms of the good? the bad and the ugly. What do I bring to this marriage? And we may ask another question, what do I want to bring to this marriage? And then that's that transition of how do we get to that point? Some marriages start out very selfish. Is that one mate or the other or both are looking to the other person to fulfill all their needs. And so it becomes a very smothering kind of relationship need to ask the question, what do I need to do on my side of the street? And then the mate needs to ask that. We start way too early with marriage counseling sometimes, is we're trying to fix a relationship when we have one or two people that are horribly broken. And so we need to take care of ourselves first. That would be my first, my first suggestion. And sometimes that, sometimes, and this doesn't always go over good, but sometimes that may mean a period of time that's a separation for fasting and prayer where we are really focused on let me get my act together and let me let me get myself where I can present myself as a decent mate to the other person uh, I didn't say divorce them but get your act together and have something to present that sort of answer that that would be the first the very first step and then the other step uh, steps after that is once once you're building the relationship give each other credit when you see someone's making effort they're trying to make some changes changes don't come easily and when we see someone starting to make changes they may not get it totally perfect but what we do is we affirm that we affirm what they're doing that's positive and we compliment them we support them if you would and instead of they start making some change and we kick them down one more thing sometimes we need our mate to be sick so we look good. And that's a horrible relationship. In other words, you've got to look bad because when you start looking good, now all my flaws show. And so there's there's sometimes things that are kind of hidden agendas there. All right. Other questions? <clears throat>